We are continuing to work our way, and we're actually nearly at the end now of the book of 2 Peter. And as I've mentioned time and time again, the second coming is front and center of what Peter is writing to these people about. Second coming is also the day of the Lord. It's the day of judgment. It's all of those things um, tied up in one. I think what I want us to think through a little bit as Peter brings this through is Peter is driving home to us that the reality of that should inform and shape the reality of our day-to-day living. We see this every day in our own lives. and We've experienced this firsthand in the last 18 months or so as a culture. Not just a culture in Parksville or in B.C., but in Canada and around the world. We have seen how a present and possibly a future reality has shaped our behavior. It's changed our vocabulary. It's changed the way that we have lived. Now, in the examples that I'm going to give, please don't understand me as making a case for or against these. Simply the observations that these realities are are changing our behaviors. Who would have thought that we would be familiar with language like shelter in place? Or that wearing masks would so determine our behaviors? Or leaving your name and number when you went to a restaurant? Or the jab? Or six feet apart? Or hand washing? Or travel restrictions? Our behaviors have been shaped and are continuing to be shaped by present and future realities. Think about climate change. Climate change is also having an increasing impact on the behaviors of men and women around the world. It's changing the kinds of things that we use, plastic straws, plastic bags. It's changing the kind of cars we drive. It's changing the tax system under which we live. It's changing the oil and gas industry. It's the creation of new industries. It's carbon offsets. It's how we deal with our personal home garbage. All of these things are impacted by the possibility of significant worldwide changes in our climate. Or consider the Olympics, which we've just come through. Young men and young women at very, very young ages have shaped their lives with the hope of one day maybe making an Olympic team and possibly winning a medal. That dream has shaped their eating and their drinking and their sleeping and their friendships and their day-to-day activities. So we know what it is to have future realities shape our behaviors. Now, all of those things are uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen health-wise in a month. And yet, we continue to have it shape our lives. We don't know if the world will, in fact, increase in temperature in 100 years, yet it is shaping our lives. We don't know if we will make an Olympic event, and yet it is shaping the lives of tens of thousands of young people. We know for certain that Jesus is coming again. How is that shaping our lives. This is what Peter is getting to. He's, he's driven, he's answered a few questions for us in this last little while. The first question was simply, why can't I put the day on my calendar? And we look through that because God has a different perspective of time than we do. 
Well, why has that day been delayed? Well, we learned the day has been delayed because God is patient. He's, he's, he's merciful. Well, what is going to happen when that day comes? Well, we looked at that, and the heavens are going to be burned with fire and, and go away with a roar, and the elements are going to melt, and the earth and all the works done on it are going to be exposed. Well, the next question is then, since in light of all this, how are we to live? How are we to live in the certain reality that Jesus Christ is coming again? Notice what Peter says in verse 11. Now, I'm going to read verses 11 to 14 and then come back and just make a few comments. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since the heavens and the elements and the earth is going to be impacted by the day of judgment, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since God is going to bring about a day of judgment with cataclysmic effects on this universe, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, Peter is saying your behavior ought to reflect that coming day. I think we're troubled, and I have been uh, from time to time when I read this. Is, he's, is he asking a question there? What sort of people ought you to be? No, he's, he's actually making kind of an exclamation. He said, since all these things are to take place, you ought to live holy and godly lives. It's a, it's a statement of exclamation about the character of our lives and the type of behavior it's like he's saying, how astonishingly excellent you ought to live in light of that day. In other words, that day should shape the way that we live here on earth. And I hope if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you're beginning to understand this. Peter's been exposing to us the false teachers who have come amongst the people and said, oh, it's just a bunch of hooey, this stuff. The Lord's not coming back. There is no day of the Lord. What are you worried about? What are you thinking about? There is no judgment at the end. And then Peter describes, well, this is the type of life that results when you don't see that day as a reality. Immorality, sexual passions, greed, training in greed, taking advantage of one another. It's a, it's a world gone crazy like we live in today. And Peter is saying, that's what the false teachers say. But the day of the Lord will come and in light of it, certainly, how ought you ought how should you live? And so I've got a number of things. You'll notice there's six on the paper. Please don't fret. I've cut out the last two. Um, and so we've only got four, of the first four. The first is simply this. We ought to grow in our assurance of that coming day. I jump back to verse 10 and pick up from there to help us. It says simply this. Peter, after he talks about the scoffers, he says, but the day of the Lord will come. There's no doubt about it in Peter's mind or in the prophecies of Scripture. But the question I ask, or a few questions, are you convinced that the day of the Lord will come? Do you want to be more fully convinced that the day of the Lord will come? Can you increase your assurance that the day of the Lord will come? Well, for me, the answer to all three of those questions is yes. And here's a foundation on which we can build that will strengthen our assurance that the day of the Lord will come. The first is simply this. Are you convinced that Jesus Christ came the first time? 
It's not a joke. It's, 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 a, it's a real affirmation because the second coming is tied to the first coming. Are you convinced that Jesus Christ has already come to this world some 2,000 years ago? See, Scripture prophesied about that birth hundreds of years before it took place. I think Isaiah was about 800 years before the actual birth. The, the, the prophets told us where he would be born. The to prophets told us who he would be born to. The prophets told us the circumstances around which he would be born into. Hundreds of years before it took place. And Christ came and he was born in this earth. He lived, he walked, he breathed, he died. He was raised a human being on this earth. But when the fullness of time came, Paul writes, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Are you convinced that Jesus sent or God sent Jesus into the world. He lived, he died, and he bought your freedom. John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is acknowledging that we actually have seen God in the flesh. He came already once to this world. The angels, as they were talking, to the disciples as they watched Jesus on his very last day on earth, as he's gone up into heaven, the angels say to him, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. You get the connection? The same Jesus that was on earth and went up to heaven is going to come back again a second time to earth visibly. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that means he came to earth, he died on the cross for our sins, so this Jesus, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. See how the second coming of Christ is rooted in the first coming of Christ? He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Loved ones, Strengthen the foundation of your conviction that Jesus Christ is coming again by strengthening your conviction that Jesus Christ has come the first time. There's another foundation, though, and it's to be familiar with the promises and the prophecies and the exhortations about the coming of Christ and the day of the Lord. Scriptures have so much to say about the second coming of Christ. Now, you could start by reading Daniel and Revelation, and that would be a hard place to start, but they will describe to you and tell you about events leading up to the return of Christ and the events of the world and what the world will look like. And if you want to read some of these texts, the food for thought that has been handed out has readings for all of this week to drive you into scriptures that talk about the return of Christ. But I would say the first place to start is simply to fill your mind with what Jesus taught about his return. I really think that is the best place and the most important place to start. After all, Jesus' disciples came to him and they asked him, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? That's pretty clear, right? What will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? 
They asked Jesus himself that question. And so I think probably the best way to start is then to wrestle with Jesus' answer. Read again and again what Jesus said. This will be what characterizes the world as my coming comes closer and closer at the end of the age. Read Matthew 24 and 25. Read Luke 17. Read Mark chapter 13. Read them often. I'm sometimes surprised by how great our knowledge is of one or two texts of Paul about the end times, but we have no knowledge of Christ and what he taught about the end times. And yet everything that the apostles said and wrote about the end times is rooted in what Jesus taught. Their teaching is simply an explanation, uh, a ref- not a refinement, a, 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 a clarification of things that Jesus taught. And so we know so much about what Paul or John taught in Thessalonians or in Revelation, but we also almost know nothing of what Jesus taught in Matthew 24 and 25. Peter, and I didn't read it, but a little bit later in uh, verse 15 or 16, he talks about the fact that we need to remember the coming of the Lord and also some things that Paul wrote which are hard to understand. Some people have taken that out of context and gone to everything that's difficult in Paul's writing and said, well, that's what he's talking about. No, Peter's talking about the coming of the Lord. Paul wrote some things that are very hard to understand about the coming of the Lord. Read 1 Thessalonians uh, uh, 4. Read 1 Thessalonians 5. And then if you want some more challenging stuff, read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then read 1 Corinthians 15. And you will find that Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand but they fill out for us our knowledge about the coming of the Lord and the end of this age. So if you want to grow in your assurance of the coming of the Lord, grow in your conviction that Jesus Christ has come already, the first time, and fill your mind with the prophecies and the exhortations and the explanations that help us understand the second coming of Christ. The second one is simply be ready. Be ready. Again, verse 10, and I'll get to verse 11 in a couple minutes, but verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Can I gently but firmly just remind us and exhort us as the people of God? Set aside any notions that you can pinpoint the day. Stop listening to those who can tell you that they know the day. Don't deceive yourself and don't be deceived any longer by those who tell you they know the day. They don't. And they can't. Because the Bible says very clearly, concerning the day, that day, and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Just give up that pursuit. Rather, be ready when it does come. Because Jesus then carries on and he says, For as we're in the days of Noah, so will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, life was carrying on. They didn't expect anything unusual. They were just caught up in the world, eating and drinking, the daily necessities of life, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day 
when Noah entered the ark. Just keep in mind that it was a day a, a, within a 24-hour period. Not some huge, in the day, the 24-hour period, but the day that Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot left Sodom, again, within a 24-hour period, on the day when Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day. There will be a 24-hour day when all of a sudden everything will change. And Christ will come back. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, this is 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. In other words, there's people going around saying, oh, we know when it's going to happen. And, and Paul is saying, no, you don't need anything written to you. You know we can't know the hour and the day. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Loved ones, we, we don't know the day and the hour. The, the Bible is very clear that we will not know it. Only God knows it. We don't know when it will be, but rather we are to live in a state of readiness. To live in such a way that we are ready when Jesus comes again. Paul continues on in, with the Thessalonians. says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. That's so encouraging. We don't have to be caught off guard. For you are all children of light, children of the day. You see, we know Jesus is coming back. We know that we are to live in the light of that coming day. We know that scoffers will come. We are children of light. Be ready. Thirdly, live expectantly. Peter writes in verse 12 that we are looking for and hastening the coming day of God. Looking for the day of God. That is another way of saying being expectant that the day will come. The parousia, the coming day of God. This is our firm expectation. Peter uses that same word in verse 12, verse 13, and verse 14. The ESV, which we use here as a church, is translated waiting for. It's a present, active participle. It means that our daily activity ought to be one of expectantly waiting for and looking for Christ to come back, knowing that he's coming back. We just don't know when, but we are living in expectation that it will happen. Paul, again, writing to Titus, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That's the first coming of Christ. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's how we're to live. And then he says, waiting for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Loved ones, the blessed hope of the people of God is the appearing of Jesus Christ. And we are to live expectantly of it. Living expectantly is described many, many ways in the New Testament. Let me just kind of zero in on very general terms. Matthew 25. Matthew 25 
describes living expectantly. It's got three vignettes. It's got a vignette, vignette which is the parable of the ten virgins. Virgins. It's got a vignette of the parable of uh, uh, the landowner and giving an account, and then it has the sheep and the goats judgment. All of those are in the context of the coming day of the Lord. The first one is simply the ten virgins. They have lamps and they have oil in the lamps and they are waiting for a bridegroom to celebrate the, the wedding and his coming back and they trim their lamps and they're waiting but he's been delayed and they don't know when he's coming and they fall asleep but they still have their lamps and, and it tells us how the bridegroom came. Five of them were ready and five of them were not. And one word sums up that parable, I think, is preparedness. Five were prepared. They were living expectantly for that bridegroom to come, even though he was delayed, and five weren't. They were caught off guard. The second is the parable of the talents. It's a story of a man who owned a, a vast estate, and he had lots of money and lots of servants, and he was going away on a journey, and he calls all his servants together, and he says, come, come here, I, I'm going away. But I, I want to entrust you with my goods. I want you to demonstrate stewardship with all that I give you. And so he gave them his property with the expectation that they would use what he had given them, stewarding it while they waited for him to come back. No, no, when he would come back, but simply to steward their master's uh, gifts towards them. And then the text says, after a long time, the master returned. And settled accounts with them. Two notes, just of pre preparedness. After a long time. A day when they, where they, like a thief. Some were living expectantly because they had stewarded what he had given them and invested it and done more. And one had not. So when he came back after a long time, he asked them to give an account. And so the second is simply just live with the light that we are going to give an account before God. We talked about that last week. That's living expectantly, living with the reality that we know that Jesus Christ is going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to ask for an account of how we have lived our lives. The third is the parable of the sheep and the goats. The clarity is unmistakable. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And then it describes the judgment. And we say, well, what's that judgment based on? Well, it's based on nature. And nature? Well, yes, your nature. You either have the nature of your heavenly father, or one has the nature of Satan. There's only two fathers in this world. The Bible makes that very clear. You have God as a father, or you have Satan as a father. Jesus talks about that. And we will reflect the nature of our father. And so if we are children of God, we will more and more reflect his nature. And so Jesus goes and he calls the sheep and he calls them up to himself and he says, listen, um, enter into the kingdom prepared for the angels beforehand. And he says, and they say, well, what? He says, well, you did this and you did this and you gave your money and you visited and you clothed the naked. And they said, well, when did we do that? You see, they just did it naturally. They just lived for God naturally as it reflected their heavenly father. And then he comes to the other group. And he says, depart from me, you wicked servants. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. When did we not see that? They were living for themselves. They, they had the nature of their 
Father Satan. And so there's this simple reality that as we live expectantly, we just live with the desire to become more and more like our Father. And as our Father begins to influence all that we do, we begin to live like Him. And so living preparedly means living for our Father. And notice it says, by the way, as you did it to the least of these little ones. The little ones are the church, the people of God. So how we treat the people of God matters. So that's, in a part, what it means to live effectively or to live expectantly. Be prepared. No will give an account. And does our nature reflect our Heavenly Father? But then Peter says something really, at first hand, um, wonders. He says, hastening the coming day of God. Hastening the day of God? Can I do that? I thought the day was fixed. How, how can I hasten the coming day of God? Is this a typo? Did, 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 did Peter and the translators not get this right? Well, no, I, I think there's a couple ways that we can hasten the coming day of God, at least in biblical terms. Remember, we looked at last week where he said, the Lord is patient. He's delayed his coming. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So in my mind, I say, okay, well, one of the ways that we hasten the return of Christ is repentance. To repent. Just give up our hard-heartedness. Give up our pride. Give up our sinful ways. Come before God in, in repentance and on our knees and say, Father, I am just sorry that I keep pursuing my own pleasures and my own will and sorry that I don't rely on your Holy Spirit. Father, forgive me. Fill me. Use me. Guide me. Direct me. Sanctify me. Shape me into your image more and more each and every day. And through our repentance, that's what God is waiting for. He's waiting for us to repent. But he's also waiting in a broader way for the world, for many in the world yet to repent. We don't just go across the street, but we go around the world with the gospel. Some of you might recall the words of Jesus, which were part of what he, his answer to the disciples when they asked him what would be the sign of his coming at the end of the age. He said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Missions. Are we involved in missions? I am so thankful for the work of missions that goes out from this church. I would sometimes wish it was doubled and tripled. I, I wish its budget were doubled and tripled. But I'm so thankful for the, the, the time that you spend praying, for the hard-earned dollars of, that you steward, that you give towards missions. I'm thankful that God has continued to raise up in our own congregation young men and young women who are listening to the call of God and they are going out in missions around the world. And I would say continue to pray for it, continue to support it. And if God is speaking to you, get up and go. Because one of the ways that we can hasten the coming of Christ is to take the gospel to all the nations and then the end will come. So loved ones, embrace missions. Be passionate for the gospel to go to every corner of this world. Because when it does, the end will come. And finally, live hopefully. We have to live growing in assurance. We have to be ready. We have 
living expectantly, and the final one is living hopefully. How? By believing on the promise of God of a new heaven and a new earth. I wish we could spend really weeks and maybe, maybe in a month just talking about the new heaven and the new earth. The Bible has so much to say on this. I hope I can simply give you a little bit of the lay of the land and, and just it will ignite your imagination. You'll go back to scriptures and say, I want to learn more about the new heavens and the new earth. I think the promise maybe that Peter is referring to is one that's succinctly stated in Isaiah, where God through Isaiah says, look, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Can you imagine that? We love this earth. We cultivate this earth. We travel this earth. We explore this earth. We watch beautiful sunrises. We watch beautiful sunsets. We look at amazing moonscapes. We go on safaris. We, 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 this world is a beautiful place. But God says, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, and you won't even remember this one. Try and wrap your head around that, loved one. Try and grasp what God is actually saying there to us about the world to come. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will remain before me, they will never be destroyed. What this is about is this is about a doctrine of the redeemed earth. We don't hear that much taught in our churches or explained in our church, churches. We focus more on individuals. I, I want us to just push that a little bit this morning. God is going to redeem, renew the present heavens and the earth. When we think about redemption, it's a word that we use often, and it's a biblical word, and we use it. We most often think about redemption of humans, and that is wonderful. To know that God is going to, and has, many of us here, and maybe some who are here who haven't yet redeemed, but God is going to redeem us. He's going to save us. He's going to deliver us from the curse of our sins. He's going to deliver us from the punishment of our sins. He's going to purchase us back. He's going to adopt us into his family. All of that is encapsulated in redemption. God is going to renew. He's going to remake. We are born again. But that's only a small part of the picture of redemption. Christ died not only to redeem humans, he died to redeem this universe and this world. When God first created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, I think it's six times, he looks out on what he has made at the end of the day and he says, oh, that's good. Can you imagine that? I, I, I don't want to personalize God, but I, I, I think... The sense of satisfaction that God must have had as he looked on the earth in all its pristine beauty. Oh, it's good. And then he came to the end of it all. He sat on the throne of heaven. It's very good. It must have been astounding, God's perception of that world. Yet you only need to read Genesis chapter 3, to, be, to see how quickly it all started to disintegrate. How the earth was exposed to the curse of sin. Thorns, pain, and childbearing. 
destruction, death, even in nature. Not only did man die, but creation also reaped the consequences of sin. So much so that Paul writes, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. You ever think that sometimes? This is why God has called us to steward the earth, not to rape the earth for all of its, its riches and its wealth, but to steward the earth, to care for the earth. Because it has been subject to bondage. But he said that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Just as we will, will just in, experience incredible glory when our bodies and our minds are fully renewed, so the new heavens and the new earth will explode with praise and glory to their creator. The scale of redemption accomplished by Christ is cosmic. And the total work of Christ is nothing less than to redeem this entire creation from the effects of sin. You see, the Old Testament everywhere, and I, I, the old, just trust me on this, and if you want, I can give you scripture references, but the Old Testament everywhere assumes that the land or the earth is the sphere of God's redemption, and that, in other words, Christ came to earth to redeem us, and that it's also the final inheritance of God's people. That he will give back this land to his people. Salvation and redemption is an earthly matter, both in terms of its operation and the sphere in which its results will be judged. So, for instance, we think of one of the attitudes. Some of you know them. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Hmm. Based in Psalm 37, 11. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the desire of our hearts, that God will recreate, renew the heavens and the earth such that his will in heaven will now be accomplished on earth where all the redeemed will live for eternity. There, there's so many verses um, what I just want to spark in us is this reality that our hope is in the new heavens and a new earth. I say this so gently and so carefully. Heaven is not our home. Heaven is a... What was that? Stopgap. Yeah, or, or it's, a, it's, a, it's a place where we wait until the end of the age until God recreates the earth, and then earth will be populated with those who are in heaven. The new heavens and the new earth will be our home. It will be an earthly sphere that's ruled by heaven. The Bible illustrates and emphasizes recreation, not annihilation. I know Peter describes just, just cosmic, cataclysmic upheaval in the heavens and the elements of the heavens. But Peter does not describe annihilation. And in fact, there will be renewal. And if I had time this morning, I would talk more about the discontinuity and the continuity between the new heavens and the new earth and what we may expect. But what we can say is that we get a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth by going to Revelation 21 and 22. 
And if you read those carefully, you get a sense that you're back in a garden. You think, back in a garden. And as we read our, those verses, there's a sense at which we can be saying to ourselves, there's something familiar about this place. I think I've been there before. I don't know who sang the song. I probably could have looked it up, but I want to get back to the garden. I want to get back to the garden. And in fact, that's what God will do. He is going to renew on steroids the Garden of Eden and the first creation. Everywhere in those last two chapters of the Bible are echoes of Eden. Consider the poem by East Coker by T.S. Eliot. It begins with the line, in my beginning is my end. But when you get to the end of the poem, he says, in the end is my beginning. I love that concept. You get a sense of having traversed a whole bunch of time, but you get back to where you started from. I think that's what God wants to do. He wants to get us back to the place of perfection. Revelation, just let me read a couple more verses. I'm, I'm almost done. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by the day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And that leads us to what Peter says. We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's his way of saying a place of perfection, a place of moral perfection. The passing of this present heavens and earth will mean the passing of sin and all of its evil and disastrous and life-wrecking consequences. Nothing unclean will ever enter the new heavens and the new earth, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Loved ones, this is in a sense a, a fearful verse, but it's also a verse that offers incredible grace and mercy, backed up by the very patience of God as we've been looking at. All anybody has to say, and if you're here today and you don't know God as your Savior, and in fact, we can really say that Satan is your father, not God, all you have to say is, I don't want to be a sinner anymore. I don't want to be enslaved to my sin any longer. I want to turn away from it. I want to be cleansed. I want to be washed. I want to be made clean. I want to be renewed. I want to be saved. I want the curse that hangs over me to be lifted. I want my name to be written down in the Lamb's book of life. Simply say, Jesus, please forgive me for my sin. I want you to take over my life. And you too can begin to cultivate the living hope of a new heaven and a new earth. Some of you are familiar with Joni Erickson Tata. She's fairly well-known in Christian circles, at least in certain Christian circles. She was crippled in a diving accident 
a quadriplegic. And given her acute limitations that she has lived with for so much of her life, her deepest longing for eternity may come as a surprise to you and I. This is what she writes. I can't wait to be clothed in righteousness. Without a trace of sin. Yeah, it will be wonderful to stand and to stretch and to reach to the sky, but it will be more wonderful to offer praise that is pure and won't be crippled by distractions, disabled by insincerity, handicapped by a ho-hum half-heartedness. Now my joy will join with yours, and we will bubble over with effervescent adoration, finally able to worship with the Father and the Son. For me, this is the best part of heaven, and I would say the new heavens and the new earth. Living hopefully in the sure and certain promise that your future is an earthly kingdom is a wonderful thing. Why? Because such a hope enables us to appreciate and anticipate life to come, which is so different than the perception that we have for hundreds of years of us sitting on white fluffy clouds in long white robes with wonderful harps just floating around. That's not what I want. I want to be released in a new heaven and a new earth with a purified mind to investigate the wonders and the awe and the might of God in physics and geometry and biology and cosmology to plummet the, the lengths of the universe and to understand the depths of the seas and to get into the mind of God and say, Wow, God, how did you think of that? Wow, God, what were you thinking when you made this and you made that? That's how I want to spend eternity giving glory to God for all that he has made and given us in the new heavens and the new earth. And secondly, such a hope like that helps us to magnify Christ. It's one thing to magnify Christ for our redemption. That's a wonderful thing. Christ, thank you for saving me. But let the redeeming work of Christ blow your mind as you remember that he has not only redeemed humankind, but he has redeemed this universe and this creation from its bondage to corruption and sin. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that you don't leave us in the dark about the present or the future. I really am looking forward to the day you come back, Father. Maybe not for all the reasons that I should be, but I know some of them are biblical. I do pray, Father, for these, your people, and those that are listening, that we would cultivate an ever-increasing assurance that of that day we can be certain it will come. I pray that you can help us to live in readiness of that day, even though we can't put it on our calendar and says, on this day at this time, I know Christ is coming back. We can live knowing that he will come back. Father, help us to live expectantly and help us to cultivate a hope that takes us beyond that day into eternity. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.